Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi, Jinx. Today, my guest is Kate Flannery. You probably know her best from The Office, but she's had a wonderful colorful, storied career before and after The Office. But don't worry, we're going to talk about The Office a lot because I love that show. I love the process behind making it. I love ensemble-driven entertainment. And she has so many wonderful stories to share with us about her work as an actor, her work as a writer, her work as an improv comedian, and her life as a redhead. So, Buckle up, hunker down, and sink your teeth into some brand new Hi Jinx! M. Oh. M. Mom! everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by actress, dancing diva, SAG award winner, all-around funny girl, and someone I haven't gotten to talk to in like (laughs) eight years, it's Kate Flannery. Hi, Kate. Hi, Jinx. So let's start right away. You and I met once in person at a Canadian film festival. Toronto. I I thought it was Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) And I got to tell you, um, just how seen I felt by the character Meredith on The Office. So I would like to start where I'm sure everyone wants to start and where I'm sure you've started many, many times before, but let's do it with a queer drag queen lens now. <laughs> um, so The Office, obviously a cultural phenomenon. Um, uh, it, I think it changed the landscape of television Hilarious, wonderful performances throughout every season. You played Meredith, the office. Uh, what what do we call Meredith? The, <laughs> the drunk, the drunk, but she's also a slut. But she's also she's, she's also accent prone. Yeah, <laughs> she has no shame. Yeah, yeah, she has no shame. And in many ways, I think Meredith is the most feminine uh, feminist icon of um the office she's a single mother um she supports herself and yeah she is kind of a mess but she's also always 100 honest she has yeah. no like you said she has no shame which means she has no like pride that gets in the way either <laughs> she never never has to apologize she's she's unapologetic about her life 
Yeah. Absolutely. She, you know, when I go back and rewatch it, it's just like Meredith really knew what was up most of the time. So... Except for the, the the redhead that doesn't talk that much in the back of the room. She's got a lot going on. So, yeah. <laughs> I would say blondes have more fun. Redheads have more functions. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the casting process of The Office because, um, I, I mean, I, being a big fan of the show, only know so much about how it came to be. I know that certain roles were cast and um, and I have a feeling that certain roles were built around the actors who played them. My guess is because um, so many of the characters have the same name as, as the actor playing them. I feel like some of these characters were generated. Am I right on any of this or, or tell us about right. that? I think, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the only thing uh, that we really have in common with the British version was the, the pilot. And Mm -hmm. it was kind of off to the races after that. Thank goodness. I mean, not, not that the British show wasn't wonderful, but it doesn't exactly translate. Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) I actually, I I actually auditioned for the part of Jan, who's Michael Scott's boss. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, the casting director, Alison Jones said, you know what? I think you're really right for the show. I don't know if this is your part, but I I think you're really right for the show. And I, I, I didn't get the pilot. Um, I was not in the pilot. Uh, and I yeah. replaced somebody who was in the pilot. And, um, uh, you know, um, I I wasn't even sure if I was going to, how long I was going to be there. I, I just couldn't tell. Um, it all felt like a, I don't know. I just felt like when you know you replace somebody, I feel like I was walking on eggshells the first couple of weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But and- I, the only thing I knew was the information from the episode, The Alliance, which was that she was, that Meredith was uh, divorced, um, had two kids, that they, but we only really saw one. Um, and um, she had a hysterectomy and was um, lactose intolerant. That was it. <laughs> um. So in the beginning, in the early seasons in The Office, I think it's very clear that it's very much like, you know, the show was built around the character Michael Scott, both the British version and the the American version. So the person playing Michael Scott is pivotal to the show. But once we once season one was a success, um, it seems like from season two on and then especially after Steve Carell left the show. Um, that it became more and more ensemble-based throughout the years. And to see characters like Phyllis, <laughs> who starts out like so small of a character, but so perfect for the role that she plays. Yes. And then by the end, I'm like, I'm team Phyllis on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like working with an ensemble for so long? You know, we know that TV shows, they can go on for like a decade, they can go on for many decades or they can have two seasons and be done. So what was that process like throughout the years? Well, luckily for me, you know, I, I came from the ensemble world in Chicago comedy and improv. Mm-hmm. So I had worked at Second City. I worked at the Annoyance Theater. I toured with shows like I, I understood the dynamics of that. I also understood the idea of being supportive to the other players. So even if you're not yeah. talking, you have to be fully realized, even if you don't speak, like you have to mm-hmm. be, if that is your support for everything that you actually treat yourself like you exist, like your character. Yeah. Exists. Uh, so, you know, I don't know how well Meredith was defined initially, but I feel like uh, 
as I kind of look back, I feel like um, uh, um, maybe I talked a lot about my dad's bar, my dad in a bar. What a shock. I'm playing a drunk. You know? uh, <laughs> But it's just kind of interesting as I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I just know that um, that first Christmas, well, the first Halloween episode, we were supposed to learn that uh, that Meredith was an alcoholic and it completely got cut out completely, all of it. Mm-hmm. But then um, apparently it was too sad for Halloween, but not for Christmas because that's when we found out she was a drunk. And then like, you know, uh, that's when I first, um, you know, flashed. Exposed uh, yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then that becomes a recurring bit of... I think we all know very well about that um the tube dress that Meredith is wearing on <laughs> Casual Friday. And first it's showing off below and then she pulls it down and then she's showing off above and okay. um I completely unapologetic. <laughs> out, everybody. It's casual day. There's there's two specific moments I want to talk to you about and then I feel like I will be sated and we can move on from the office. But first and foremost, I just want to commend whoever came up with the line. I think it's from the same episode. It's uh, It might be from the same episode um, where uh, the office has a lice breakout and everyone blames Meredith because of who Meredith is. Right. And Meredith very uh, wastes no time shaving her head. You know, like we've talked about, she she has no pride. So <laughs> what's to stop her from shaving her head and just getting rid of the lice at the source? And then um, I don't know if it's in this episode, but Pam is like going to the store and says, can I get anyone anything? And Meredith says, um, pick me up a pack of Nicorette gum and a pack of Luckies or something like that. Just like she needs cigarettes for her smoke break and gum to get her to her smoke break. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, Cause you know, I've had my, my, um, my, <laughs> I've had my years of addiction and being sober from alcohol for four years, I can say that, um, the addict brain <laughs> needs those stepping stones. Yes. You know? <laughs> Beautifully designed, uh, based, uh, the comedy is based in reality, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, it was, I said, I, I, I just felt like that is so perfect writing because that is so the mind of that character. Right. And then um, also in the Lice episode is I think one of the, uh, at least a very clear cut point in the show where a character like Pam, who is so well put together and so revered within the office of the office politics, um, learns a lesson from Meredith, who's like the dregs of the office. And I thought that was really, really powerful and important in a in a hilarious, absurd way. And uh, so I just wanted to give you and the show those kudos and just say thank you for for bringing Meredith to the world so that all of us messy, drunken sluts can feel a little less bad about ourselves. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've been stopped so many times. I'm the Meredith of my office. And they're so loud and so proud. I believe them. Yeah. It's a, it's a very specific trait. And yeah. I, I, you know, I waited tables up and through the first season of The Office. I bartended in New York. I, But I, I have waited on several Merediths. I've met her. I, and there was a Meredith at my dad's bar briefly, but she was, she was a little more buttoned up. But yeah. Listen. But, Without Merediths in the world, drag queens, I don't know what audiences we'd be performing to because Merediths love 
drag queen. No, I I feel like I had such a great experience on that show, you know, and I learned a lot about, you know, just kind of getting out of my own way. And I stopped Mm -hmm. counting lines because I didn't talk like some episodes. I literally did not have lines or I'd have one line or one word. Um, And I think there's it's just important to remember that when you're part of a whole and if you really trust the people that you work with and the creators and all that stuff, it's like every time I did have something to do, it was completely worth the wait. So I'm very grateful. Because it taught me a lot. And also, it also taught me that sometimes when you talk a lot, people, it's harder to be funny when you talk a lot. And yeah. when, when you talk less, it's like you actually have more impact. Or sometimes I literally would get a laugh, just my face. Like I, they would just cut to me and I'd get a laugh. So <laughs> I love the fact that like, I didn't even have to speak to be in the mix or to be noticed or have a presence. So, you know, it's another thing, just like, again, everybody's, you know, trying to, you know, get what they want. And it's like, do you, do you want what you get? You know, it's like sometimes you enjoy what you got. Yeah. I, I think that's so beautiful because, you know, um, I, I think we're always as performers, you know, when we're in an ensemble situation or we're in a group situation, it's always like, how do I stand out in the best way so right. that I get my kudos and I get my flowers. And what you're describing is something that I think I had to learn in my work overall, which has improved my enjoyment of my work, but also like, um, just, uh, gets you through the times when, (laughs) when you do have the smaller part or something. But, um, I had to constantly remember, um, uh, when I was in college, uh, the play Our Town has like two main characters and then a bunch of a bunch of one line characters. Right. So when you're in your college years and y- you're finally doing a college show, you know, I went to acting school. So the so the shows were like a big deal. And I played Joe Crowell, the paper boy, who has one line in act one. And then in act three, we find out he's dead. So. <laughs> And I asked my favorite acting teacher, like, what do I even do with this? Like, how do I have any kind of impact in the show with with two lines and a death, you know? And she said, well, in those two lines, you have to be so full of life. You have to be the most happy-go-lucky, lovely, endearing little person so that when we find out he died, it means something. And Uh that's... That was something I learned in college and not haven't always like practiced in my work. But when I do really just focus on what does my role contribute to the overall story and how do I play that role the very, very best so that so that my character serves the purpose that they were written for for this story. And it takes a lot of like it takes a lot of suppressing your ego But when you do that, that's actually how you stand out because people will always remember the person who contributed the best to the story by playing their role the way it was written, you know, the way it was uh, with the the intention behind that character. It's a very mature concept, which maturity and actors don't always mix. I'm just saying, (laughs) it's kind of an oxymoron, mature actor. You know what I mean? But but that's part of why you know, how people function as creative people, like they have to take up a lot of space or it's a, you know, it's a lot of energy to be them all the time and they have to keep, 
they have to keep some particular invisible ball in the air all the time. So I feel like in many ways, I, I'm having um, maybe a happier life because I feel like I'm, I don't have that, that major responsibility on my shoulders, at least not right now. <laughs> so you're more like a goalie than a, than a, <laughs> than a kicker. <laughs> I don't know sports. I want to talk a little bit about another project um, that you worked on. You played a character in this, and it's one of my favorite shows. And I did not know until my producer sent the outline that you voiced the character of Barb Miller in um, Steven Universe, which is one of my favorite shows. I'm also a voice actor on it. Congrats. We are now colleagues. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, um, I had a one episode yeah, arc. Who are um, you? Who are you? Emerald, Emerald, um, one Ooh. of the homeworld gens chasing down Lars when he becomes a space pirate. So... <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and you play Barb. And now that I know that you play Barb, it makes perfect sense. Barb is. Um, um, mom and Sadie is, is um, yes. uh, uh, Stephen's best friend. Yeah. Yes, yes. Sadie's mom. And Barb starts out as a very small character. She's the male woman. But then she has some really formative episodes with Sadie, um, letting Sadie grow up to be her own person, letting go of kind of micromanaging her child's life or living vicariously through her child. It's a really, really important episode. And it was actually that episode that another friend of mine who is, you know, I say Steven Universe is my religion. Um, we we dissect the episodes. And I think at this point in my life, I was like, I'm so sick of the human episodes. I just want gem episodes in outer space. And my friend right. said, you, you need the human episodes because Steven is a gem and a human. And that's what makes him so unique. And you need to see Steven's human connections to the world. And I was like, shit and then <laughs> and then the episode um that i was talking about where sadie wants to sing in the talent show and barb kind of hijacks sadie's experience right, and it's a really right. formative episode and you did amazing work as a voice actor in that oh, so what was it like um uh what was it like working on steven universe through many seasons and, and how do you like voice acting well i love voice acting well you know the nice thing is that i uh, working with Re Rebecca Sugar, um, her partner is Ian Jones Cordy, and I was I was on um, OKKO. OK I actually did a lot more episodes of OKKO. OK I paid I played Ko's mom, um, Carol, um, who also had a alter ego, Silver Spark. So um, that was really fun. But um, you know, they actually did a side by side comparison at the really big Comic Con in San Diego uh, when. Um, Okay, Kale was like about to be announced, was just about, you know, it was being announced at the mm -hmm. con and other stuff. So I just, I was, I love that those two characters existed and then were compared. <laughs> I, it was just, it kind of freaked me out because I haven't done a ton of voiceover, but I feel like what I've done has been meaningful to me. Like yeah. stuff I really, really am proud of. That's amazing. Voiceover work is so much fun because. Uh, you know, you, you're doing everything you do as an actor, but you only have to focus on the voice, which is such a relief um, working in front of cameras. It, ta it, it takes the whole day to shoot some of the shortest 
shortest little blips in the show. <laughs> right. Although I will say when I was doing um, okay, KO, a lot of times we would be in these like altercations with other characters. So you have to be like, oh, <laughs> you know, you have to like really be engaged in like this, this interaction with someone. It was kind of trippy, uh, <laughs> kind of exhausting, but I loved it. So you just described two more characters you've played since The Office, and they're both moms. I want to ask you, I think I've noticed through the years, Katie Segal, who played Peg Bundy on Married with Children, I would say, aside from Leela in Futurama, 90% of her roles have been moms. And I was going to ask you a little bit about being a character actor or the concept of being typecasting. And I was going to ask about, do you get typecast as the drunk or the mess? But it sounds like now you're kind of typecast as a, a as a motherly figure. <laughs> Only in voiceover. I mean, I've done a few, I've, I've done a few mom parts uh, in, in indie films. Um, mm. But I feel like even the guest star stuff I've done, I'm, I'm not usually, I, I was a mom in Bernie Mac, an episode of Bernie Mac right before I got the office. I think that was a lot of time before. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, no, no, I, I don't, I mean, every once in a while, I feel like, uh, I have the possibility of playing another drunk and, and, um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't feel like I need to go against type or anything. I understand how things, you know, I, if it's well-written, I'm happy to play another drunk, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So you wouldn't, uh, would you say that in your career, uh, you've been stifled by Meredith at all. Um, I've been talking with some other character actors on this podcast about going up in acting school where it was like taught to me, we've got to neutralize you and we've got to make you as like neutral as possible because I was so clearly what I am. <laughs> and I remember like working hard on trying to neutralize my voice and neutralize like stances and stuff. And I'm really glad for having done that work because I feel like it's easier to start with a new character if I kind of like start at a base level that's much more neutral and less me, unless that character is a lot like me. But I find that these days there's a lot of job security in being a character actor and that like being a leading man or an ingenue is kind of a cursed destiny of um, for a select few. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like even, well, obviously for, for younger women who are more the ingenue, mm-hmm. you know, you get stuck and then you, you grow out of your, your, you know, I mean, because women get older and it's got to be, you know, intense for people who rely on a certain look and a certain age to be successful because, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it, that's why everybody's getting the crazy plan. I mean, that's why the friends look like they did in their reunion. I'm just saying. Let me. Say that. I'm just saying. You know, I mean, the nice thing about the office is that it was the first time there was casting where we literally could have been a documentary. Like we were, in general, not particularly pretty people, and I felt like I was representing on pretty people, and I was happy to do that. Although I, I have to tell you, uh, right before. Um, we started, I got a copy of one of the episodes before it started to air and I showed it, uh, we had a little screening at my good friend, Jackie beats house and, um, mm. uh, drag queen superstar. Um, uh, and Jackie was like, Oh my God, can't they give you makeup? You're not wearing any. And I was like, Oh, I remember feeling like so exposed. And then my, even my mother said it when we were like, can't they, it's nothing. Can they give you nothing? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get laid working on this show. 
It's like the one thing I'm most known for, and I'm never going to live. And apparently I have rest, resting drunk face because they made me drunk. I'm like, oh, my God. But you know what's so ironic? Meredith got laid more than anybody else on that show. And I met my boyfriend on The Office. We're still together. We, we're like the only ones that had like a Jim and Pam experience on the set. And we're still together 17 years later. So oh, I love that. My fears were, um, you know, I mean, I, anyway, I mean, but I understand. I mean, I totally understand. I feel like I didn't really see it through other eyes. And then when Jackie Beat was like, honey, honey, can you talk to them? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just love that. I love, I love the fearlessness that it takes to be a character actor. Like you said, when it like, when it can bleed out and like, is this going to affect my sex life in real life? Or is this going to, I'll say that I held back on many parts of my personal self because I was convinced of the idea of what men find attractive or what people in my community find attractive. Right. And, and that if I depart too much from that, then I'm dooming myself to a life of celibacy. What I can say is the further I've leaned into who I truly am uh not only has the, the sexual interactions not dried up but they've been much better and i have a i have a motto which is um sex is so much better when you get to be yourself during it so if you like snare someone because you're you know like glamoring them with lots of makeup and you know whatever presentation you're you're going by because that's what you think people are attracted to um i'll tell you uh, fucking like that is really uncomfortable and <laughs> <laughs> I reached a point in my life where I'm like, I can't wear Spanx in bed. That's ludicrous. That's asinine. <laughs> and also, at some point, you're going to turn into a pumpkin. I just tell you. <laughs> Whether it's like years later or like later in that night or early morning, like it's going to happen. So you might as well just, you know. <laughs> you might as well start there. Yes. And some time. I mean, I met my husband, I always say I met my husband at my fattest and baldest. It was before I had a hair transplant. It was before I quit drinking. Um, if he fell in love with me at my fattest and baldest, then think of what he's doing to me now that I'm like feeling my oats and feeling so much yummier. You know? Oh, great. See, I love this because this it really is about, it is about people seeing what's really you and what's wonderful about you all the time. <laughs> well, thank you. I want to know, um, so you mentioned Jackie Beat. Jackie yeah. Beat, of course, is a friend of mine, and we all love Jackie Beat. You I want to know Jackie off Broadway. We did Valley of the Dolls together. Um, I didn't know that. You're in LA. Uh, in fact, I moved from New York to do Valley of the Dolls. Jackie B played Helen Lawson and I played Neely O'Hara. And it was a stage production of the movie. So it was um, it was a heightened version. And I always mm -hmm. called this like pre-YouTube theater. It was very Rocky Horror. People were just <laughs> screaming the lines, trying to beat us to it. It was really wonderful. This is back in 1996. We were at the Circle and Square in New York. Um, and we got great reviews. Um, and we, when we were here, we were at the St. Genesius and at the Coast Playhouse. But we had the best time. I mean, it was just, it was one of my favorite things I've ever done on stage. And because of Jackie, I sang in every drag bar in New York back in the, in the <laughs> late 90s. 
<laughs> I love that. Yeah, it was it was really awesome. I mean, I I I feel like it was just an amazing theatrical experience and you know, Jackie's such a pro and I, I just, you know, it's it's rare when you get to work with people who truly like you you feel like you can trust them no matter what. You know, anything mm-hmm. goes wrong, it's always a good thing. You know, it's like every, <laughs> yeah. no one drops the ball, no one's freaking out, everyone's just rolling with it and it's just better and better. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Second City Improv, and I have here in my notes that that is where um, you met Jane Lynch, or you worked with Jane Lynch um, doing improv at Second City. Oh, at the annoyance. I met her at Second City. Um, my Wonderful. aunt got me a ticket to check out Second City. She lived in Chicago after I, after I graduated uh, college. She thought that Second City would be a good fit, and boy, was she right. <laughs> the first time I went, Jane was understudying for Bonnie Hunt, another actress. And it was just like a crazy night because Bonnie Hunt got married that day. And so she came back to do the improv set in her wedding dress. <laughs> it was like a crazy, crazy, crazy night, but it was really, really fun. And, and uh, yeah, about a year, year and a half after I met Jane, I became her understudy at the annoyance. And uh, we, we, and we worked, I was still in the show, but I was for under, we did the show, the real life Brady bunch together. Yeah. So, so, and yeah. you, and you've stayed friends with Jane Lynch through the years. Yes. Yeah, so and we and- together and we tour yeah, I um, I've been talking a lot on this podcast about the power of friendships and those kind of working friendships. And like you mentioned, someone who you can trust so you can be a fool around them, but you know that you're safe because we're just trying everything and, let, and we'll be honest with each other about what works and what doesn't work. Right. Um, I found that like, I mean, when you think about the Christopher Guest movies, like um, Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show, these iconic ensemble based films. And then you see those um, comedy actors working together in those films. And then you see them working together other places. I felt for a long time like comedy in Hollywood is uh, there's like a comedy family where it's like right. everyone kind of knows each other and right. has a has a working relationship or a past with each other. And there's kind of two generations of it because there's the um, there's the the Jane Lynch generation we're talking about, and then now there's this newer generation forming. And I'm thinking of people like Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, and right. um, uh, Paul W. Downs and all these comedians who are like building the next generation of uh, young comedy actors. And then they are often pulling from the old guard of the comedy, <laughs> comedy legends, and y'all are collaborating together. And it's this really beautiful thing to see throughout the years. And so when I hear things like, yeah, Kate Flannery and Jane Lynch have known each other for <laughs> a long time, and it makes perfect sense because... When you all work together, it really has the feeling of a bunch of friends who like each other coming together to create something they all want to create. <laughs> so true. And, you know, I, it's and also, you know, at a certain point, it's like the idea of touring is not always I mean, sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it's like, oh, God, how many shows are we doing this? You know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you have to be with someone that you I mean, even if we're having a rough time getting the travels messy and we get to the show, once we get on stage we leave like we had the best, the time of our lives, you know, yeah. and hopefully the audience did too. You know, that's the thing. So it's got to come from joy or what's the point, you know? Yeah. 
just, yeah. So I feel really lucky. We actually got to do our non-Christmas show at the Carlisle four years ago, almost five years ago. And it was so fun. We got to stay there. It just, it was like one of the most legitimate uh, experiences of my life. And I kept trying to conjure up the ghost of Elaine Stritch. Every, <laughs> everybody that worked, I was like, tell me about her. Tell me about her. Uh, that was things. just what I was thinking. Um, as soon as you said the Carlisle, I was thinking Elaine Stritch. Right. Um, I can tell you. Um, so I just did Chicago. The d- conductor was Rob Bowman, who worked for years as Elaine, uh, Elaine's. Oh, of course. Yes, and, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's in the, he's in the documentary and everything. And oh my gosh, the stories I got to hear about Elaine Stritch. Bianca Del Rio has Elaine Stritch stories. I mean, talk about someone who, you know, maybe not everyone in the world knows exactly who Elaine Stritch is, but those in the community, in the film and TV community, in the Broadway community, in the theater acting community, she's just someone who has her reach has spread everywhere. <laughs> We were doing value dolls. I saw her in a deli on Madison Avenue. I was like couch surfing at the time. So I stopped it and I, she was literally like walking backwards saying her own name. Just put it on my tab. Stritch. Elaine Stritch. I was like, I love when celebrities yell their own name. There's something about that. I'm like, I just, I'm like. Oh, I love that. So, um, you have acted in um, films as well as doing TV. And I want to ask, have you done a lot of dramatic acting? And do you have a preference between comedic acting or dramatic acting? Is there room in your life for both? Or do you strongly prefer one over the other? <laughs> There's room in my life for both. But I feel like I mostly do comedy just because that's mostly what I'm called. But a lot of these indie films I've I've done you know, some, some drama. I, I I love it all. I mean, I think, um, I used to think that I was in a drama sometimes in the office. I was like, because I, I it was like anything not to laugh. Like, don't laugh at Steve. Don't laugh. Don't ruin the take. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously I, I, the idea of being a fully realized character, um, is important in everything you do. I th- I do think comedy is harder in a sense because you're bouncing about a ball back and forth and you can't, you just can't drop that ball, you know? And if, if you drop it, you can't really drop it. You get, you know, you, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Drama is a little bit different. And um, it's, I just feel like sometimes there's, there are beautiful people who might delude themselves to think they're, they're really good actors when they're just still and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> No, maybe. Is that fair? I think? I think that's fair. I've always felt like comedy is harder. I've always felt like comedy is harder because to make someone laugh, especially when that's the goal, you know, like uh, I remember clown class, the hardest line, uh, the hardest lesson we ever learned was they, uh, one of our teachers just had a one person at a time stand at the front of the class and say, make us laugh. And no one would laugh. You know, no one would laugh because everyone would start doing whatever they thought was funny, but not really taking into account what's actually funny in this moment right now. And I find that comedy, when you're doing it well, it's like drama. You have to be so in your own character's brain. 
But in comedy, it's like you got to be in your own character's brain, but you also got to be using your own brain, like your own co common sense of what's funniest. Like you got to know about timing. And then you got to try to be also in the brains of your scene partners because it, you got to be able to kind of like see where they're going to know how your character can then best like take that ball and keep it in the air. So right. you're thinking like three things at once. And if you're in front of a live audience, you're also listening to the laughs. <laughs> That's a roadmap. I mean, I, I had a comedy lounge act for years, for like 20 years called The Lampshades. We just stopped uh, doing it uh, two years ago. But uh, yeah, it was, I never stopped when the office started because I, I just wanted to keep writing and like doing my own thing. And we did a ton of comedy festivals and clubs around town around the around the country but i but we always had a standing gig um it used to be we did every saturday night for five years straight and then we did um uh like the first saturday of the month um and then we would do some some stuff around town as well but i loved it because you it just I, again like if you think something's funny you, you you only know it when you put it in front of other people yeah, yeah. oh absolutely now this has a lot less to do with your acting work and is very superficial, but gotta ask it. Um, you are, Meredith was iconically a redhead. You are a redhead in your day-to-day -day life. Is this a lifelong commitment? Will we ever, do you think that, do you think you'll ever wake up with a wild, wild hair to go platinum blonde or raven black or are we a redhead for life <laughs> you know the the last season of the office um after meredith meredith shaved her head <laughs> i got to wear all these wigs and i kind of like uh -huh. i did it was so fun like i think i wore like 12 wigs maybe it was 10 wigs <laughs> and the last wig was the same it was like meredith's hairstyle but in a wig it's like she'd had and i and some of it i really liked i wonder i mean um yeah, the I don't know. May, may, I mean, I'm not I'm not adverse to it, but you know, and I know a lot of friends of mine. They like went. They changed it up during the pandemic, or like they went gray, or like they had streaks of gray. And mm -hmm. trust me, I mean, you know, every day. <laughs> so let's get real. Um, but you know, I do. I look like a little old lady in Florida with red hair. Maybe, maybe I do. Maybe I cut to that point. Not in the slightest. <laughs> I just find you know when I. When I um, crowned Bianca Del Rio as the next winner, that was the moment I decided I'm going to go red permanently because I was mostly blonde the year that I had won. Right, right, right. And it was just this, it was a personal decision and it was like this weird, like I was making a mountain out of a molehill, but I also like knew I wanted to commit to one color for the rest of my career because I wanted to have like the idea that this is Jinx's hair color. The Jinx right. isn't wearing a wig. That's just her hair color. That's her hair in whatever style it's in today. And um, so I always feel really, really connected to fellow redheads. And I think that like, I think that being a redhead, whether you're naturally a redhead or, or, um, I mean, there's nothing natural about my hair, but <laughs> Double R, that's me. I always say when people say, are you a natural redhead? I say no, but neither was Lucille Ball and she made her whole career off of it. So Carol Burnett. Yeah. 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 She, yeah so she out of the box. It is a lifestyle commitment. The, the, the two women that define comedy for me is Lucy and, and, and Carol Burnett. So it makes sense. I think it makes it easier for people to just go, oh, okay, you're in comedy script right here. Yeah, because it's, I mean, 
because we know about the treatment of women in the industry. We know about like how women have been, you know, uh, the, for so long, it was like you were either the saint, the mother or the whore. And those were the three options. And you were either blonde, brunette or redhead. And those were the three options, <laughs> you know, like I think through years of conditioning in media, it's like we see like blonde as the sexy bombshell or the innocent ingenue then you have brunette as her counter and then redhead's the funny lady and so my decision to go full red was like i am a funny lady and i want to be seen as a funny lady and i'm gonna be redhead smart 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 (laughs) yeah that way if you're watching me in the sound sound you still know i'm funny because i got yeah (laughs) that's a really good point Um, so I, uh, I have a little, I have a couple like quick facts about you. Um, you love writing and playing piano, but your biggest fear is writing. (laughs) It is. Um, I want to talk to you about this because in my work, I have to do a lot of writing, but it's not anything I ever trained for in school. You know, like I very much was set on being a performer and focused on the acting And then, um, but in my work as a drag performer and like creating work with my collaborators, I've done a lot of writing through my life. And now I kind of like see myself as a writer by proxy or by circumstance. But anytime I need to sit down and write something, it's like all thoughts leave my head. And, and suddenly I don't know how to put two words together. (laughs) All over. I know this is it. This is where I end up in the box on the street. Almost people. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I think, I think what I suffer from is um, I am in judgment of a lot of actors and act who, who call themselves writers who aren't really writers. Like I wrote, I wrote a book. It's like, well, first of all, did you write the book? Did you really write the book? Did you write the book? I'll bet you didn't write the book. I'm just saying. And we're like, there's this idea that because they talked in someone um, typed as they spoke and transcribed everything that that counts. I'm like, mm, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm just, I, I know it's because I'm, I'm really hard on myself and I feel like there are people that have been writing for years and I have a lot of respect for them. And that's why I don't easily call myself a writer. I mean, I, I used to write for my comedy act and I've certainly written for Jane and I, um, you know, but she writes too. It's like, but, but I, yeah, but as far as like the bigger stuff goes and, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to decide if I'm I'm gonna do a memoir, and I'm I'm putting together some stories right now, and I'm like, oh my god, it just feels like a little daunting, and um, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it's it's just scary. Well, because I also want to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth, and I, but I don't want anybody to be hurt or like I don't want to tell stories on other people. It's got uh-huh. me because you know, I mean, people people take a lot of liberties with other people. books, you know, and and I mean, I know someone that's written a memoir, and they're they're family never talked to them again they're furious yeah well I um yeah I've I, I've dealt with that in my own work because I'm very very candid about my sex life and usually there's another person in those stories so I try to keep the other person fairly vague and you know you'd really have to know me to know like what person I'm talking about. And I would have had to tell you the story before, cause you're not going to figure it out by how I tell it on stage, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah. So there's always this kind of like, I had to kind of reconcile it with, you know, any story that involves two people equally 
belongs to both people. And um, so I always like try to focus on telling my end of the story um, to how it pertains to me and what I learned from it and not do a lot of guessing of what was going on in the other person's brain. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good way to, that's a, that's a, that's a good road. Absolutely. I also think that as, you know, as a comedian and, and having an acted stuff, I think uh, I find that I'm, I made a decision when I met my current boyfriend that I was not going to make him a punchline on stage because mm-hmm. I used to tell jokes about And it's like, it's not good. I mean, <laughs> it's just not it's it just it can it can lead to no good. Oh yeah, I mean, like my Michael and I have talked about it a lot. Um, we've been together for four years, and it's funny because I asked him early in the relationship, "Are you okay with me talking about certain things from our sex life on stage, as long as it's complimentary or it's not too personal or blah blah blah?" And he said yes. And then he would send me videos of me telling like jokes about his giant penis on stage and then he goes I'm, your your audiences are going to think that all I am is a giant penis to you and and, and so and then I stopped doing any jokes about him and then right. he said what happened to the jokes about me you can't wait so we did we've come to a place where I um basically if I need to, if I feel like it's going to serve what I'm doing, I check with him ahead of time. Is this something you feel comfortable about me joking about? And now I think I really, really know where my lines to stay within. And I mean, who's going to complain about someone going on stage and saying, he's got such a huge penis. But, um, but, um, I think at four years now, any insecurities that, um, I'm with my husband for one reason only have been dispelled because I'm sorry. I don't care how magic the dick is. You can't stay with someone for four years just because of a penis. No, 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 no. Um, breed breeds contempt. So if you guys play <laughs> along, uh, all the sex in the world is not going to fix uh, other stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have had such a lovely time talking with you, Kate. Um, I want to make sure that all of my listeners know where to find you online so that they can follow everything that you're doing. I uh, believe your Instagram is real Kate Flannery. At, at, yes. At the real, the real Kate Flannery. Yeah. Cause there's at a the real Kate Flannery. Don't follow the fake Kate Flannery. And then on Twitter, I'm at Kate Flannery. Got in there a little faster than the fakey. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not on Facebook that much, but I, I am on Facebook. So it's just Kate Flannery. Um, yeah. I'm kind of like getting a little bit back into it a little bit, you know, um, but yes, uh, you can find me. And then Jane Lynch and I, when we perform, generally the shows are up a little bit early and you can have ticket links immediately if you go to janelynchofficial.com. And we're definitely doing a big Christmas tour this December. We're going to be in at Joe's Pub in New York uh, for three shows. We're going to be in Chicago for three shows. We'll be in Boston for three. I, we got a we got a lot going on, so check it out. Wonderful. That's awesome. I just saw that Jane Lynch was announced in an audio uh book version of dykes to watch out for and that's very very exciting <laughs> <It's> exciting <laughs> i have compulsory questions that i ask every guest and if you are ready i'm gonna ask them to you and you can answer however you feel sounds good go 
First question, who is your celebrity crush today? Uh, hmm. I'm going to say Gabriel Byrne. Okay. <laughs> Are there, uh, is, is it more of a sexy crush? Is it more of a, um, a, a mutual respect crush? Is it a... <laughs> You know, it's funny. I just saw that version of Little Women. I hadn't seen it in years. And I was like, oh, my damn. He is like. <laughs> I know he's on the old side now. But, uh, yeah, I actually waited on him years ago, like 25 years ago. And I'm sort of like, <laughs> hey. <laughs> I, I'm i trying to think. I, there are certain people I get totally giggly around. But I can't. <laughs> like, everyone's like, oh, my gosh. Look at Jinx just turning into. I think my handyman. I get really giggly <laughs> Very, Probably because I watch too time. much porn. I was gonna say it's very one day at a time. Oh, and very and porn, but but I was thinking one day at a time with Schneider, like you know. I'm gonna say my celebrity crush today is Harry Styles, and I know I've said this before, but I just watched the film um, "Don't Worry, Darling" uh, with yes. <clears throat> Harry Styles. Yeah, he's very good in that. But of course, um, Frances Pugh, she is just so incredible. Um, I was thinking that movie is what the remake of Stepford Wives could have been if yes. they had it gone the comedy route. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yes. I feel like it, really I feel like it's actually for people that have never seen the Stepford, Stepford Wives. Wives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My next question to you is are you spiritual? I am spiritual. I believe Do you in have God. Any... I, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but I believe in, I, I just believe in a higher power. I just, I just think we're not here by ourselves. And I think for me, if I think I have all the answers, we're all in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. There's some, some, some greater energy. And, you know, the last few years have been really challenging and I just feel like, I feel grateful that we've gotten through them, but it's just, it's, it's still the craziness has not ended. It's actually getting weirder and more twisted. And, you know, it's just, I just have to believe that there's going to be a beginning, middle and end to this darkness. And I do yeah. think there's something lighter that's, um, you know, that's that we can still hope for. Absolutely. Because in the darkness is when you see some of the most amazing moments of human compassion and empathy brought on by the darkness. And with, everything going on in the States right now. Um, it's, it's been just, you know, it's terrifying to be a queer person right now. It's terrifying to be a trans person right now, but then it's also amazing because, um, it's like, never has it been clearer who our allies are and who our enemies are. Absolutely. It has never been more clear. And and now it's like even corporations who try to who, who pretend to be allies, you can't fake it with us anymore. You know? <laughs> so it's kind of this it's this like really interesting transitional time. And I agree with you. I think that there is a light at the other end of it. But I also know how far humanity can go, which is why I am being incessant and annoying with my um, talking about it right now. Like I don't I don't feel bad spamming people with information right now because there is if we're at this like pivotal moment and <laughs> and we got to make sure that more people are educated on the truth than they are educated on the lies, you know? <laughs> so. Absolutely. And I just think, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate when religion starts dictating how we vote 
that uh, that's got to stop. It's got to stop. It's, it's no business. And and uh, I just think this push clearly it's coming from from some people who don't trust that people would just vote for them anyway. So so something's wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, something's broken. Um, but what isn't broken is human compassion and empathy where it exists. <laughs> Amen. My final question for you, much fluffier, much lighter. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, oh, my gosh. You know what? It's got to be Summer Lovin'. I, I usually find <laughs> somebody to sing the other part. Um. <laughs> Because I know singing, right? I feel like sometimes I'm like, and you can sing, and this is too long because it's the long version of <laughs> why can't it be two minutes? And everyone would be so much happier. They get the line faster, and oh my gosh, this is annoying. Yeah, that's my. Oh opinion. yeah, karaoke is its own set of politics and its own little like microchasm that I've only scratched the surface on. But <laughs> it's a hot situation, seriously. <laughs> For a lot of a lot of us, <laughs> um, I know that uh, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey do a podcast. Um, I, I don't actually listen to podcasts, but I, I I keep up on Instagram who's doing what and talking about what and stuff. Right. Um, ha- has has friendships um, that formed in the office? Uh, have they? Are those lifelong friendships like we all want to desperately believe? <laughs> yeah, they are. Actually, I see everybody. I, we've been doing a lot of fan events recently. It was just the 10-year anniversary of the last time, the finale when the finale aired. Mm-hmm. So the last time we actually were together. Um, and we've had a ton of, of um, these, you know, either uh, fan expos or we actually, there was an all-office Comic-Con in Chicago last month. It was so fun. We, had, we It was... It's just, it's crazy. It's like, I mean, thank God I had a good time because it's all people want to talk about. So I'm happy to talk about it. Happy, but yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 we're on a text thread together too. And, you know, I mean, it's, none of us were famous when we started that show. So it's, mm-hmm. it's been like a real game changer on so many levels, like energetically for a lot of people. And, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, you can't work with people for that long and not, I mean, luckily we're, we, we have, we were all in the same room mostly, you know, so, yeah. so like a family which is great i just absolutely love that thank you so much um thank you so much for talking about everything you did for letting me grill you on the office which i know is a daily occurrence for you no, I but... say, people couldn't go to their real office so they came to ours so people got very yeah. because it made them feel more comfortable like the world was normal or there i mean there's that and i mean i it, it's uh, as a person with anxiety i wa- i rewatch shows to kind of calm my nerves oh, yeah. and the office is on a, a a rotation for me um and every time i'm watching the office i have the i have the thought in my head like i love being a performer i love touring the world but wouldn't it be so cute to just go to an office every day and do that? And I'm like, I know that's not what working in a real office would be like, but my God, if it was, I, I, I if it was like a boss who's constantly making you play murder mystery games and shit like that, I would be all for it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I know. But it really did kind of feel like an office job at a certain point because literally we'd go to our desks and, yeah. and- 
so weird because you know no one was allowed to sit at our desks like we had to you know which was kind of a nice thing so as an actor sometimes you you walk into a scene and you're not sure where you're supposed to be and you have to stand it's just great to have like to feel like there's a you have a place literally and I had the most comfortable yeah not the most attractive but the most comfortable wardrobe I was happy thank you kate thank you so much i hope you have a great rest of your day have Dude, wonderful I, shows I'm, thank you so much i'm praying for you i'm 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 keeping you know the the love and 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 spreading the you know and, and spreading the joy i thank you for keep showing up you keep showing up you keep showing up don't you we don't run we don't hide i know it's not easy but uh, i'm telling you I have such affection for drag and I feel like it has informed my sense of self and my comedy because I feel like when I've worked with, with, with drag Queens, I feel like I, I know where I stand in the world. There there's, there's truth. There's truth through it all truth and, and love and honor. So thank you. Well, you know, just to echo the sentiment, not to, (laughs) I just gotta say it's, it's a two way street between strong female performers and drag queens. You feed us, <laughs> we create work inspired by you. And then if you take inspiration back from that, then it's just all the more wonderful. You know, think of like where Beyonce started, drag queens fell in love with Beyonce, Beyonce started embracing drag in her work. And now right. look at look at where she is now. I mean, Beyonce is a living goddess, a demigod on this earth with us. And her current tour is thanking the queer community for the way they've lifted her up and influenced her work. And and it's it's, you know. It's this beautiful synergy, drag queens, drag performers, and strong, strong minded people. Yeah. <laughs> we go hand in hand. <laughs> so much love, and so much fun, and so much comedy, and you know, just another reason to be together. Thank you so much. And I was going to say, you must love drag if you're still friends with Jackie B. Thank you so much, Kate. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs> And thank you all so much for listening to Hijinks here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hijinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram, at Jinx Monsoon Official on TikTok, and at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more hijinks. M. Oh. M. Mom. To listen to hijinks one day early and ad-free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hijinx is produced by Moguls of Media, a.k.a. Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.